Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Today's conversation takes us deep into the human microbiome, the teeming masses of bacteria, viruses, and other critters that inhabit your body. It's becoming abundantly clear that these bugs are not all bad and that they deserve a lot of respect. Today's guest, Dr. Brett Finley, is an expert on the human microbiome. He's been in the field since before it existed. We'll be discussing what a healthy microbiome looks like, what links research has uncovered between microbiome health and human health, and what you can do to get your microbiome in tip-top shape. Dr. Brett Finley is a professor of biochemistry, microbiology, and immunology at the University of British Columbia. He's the author of hundreds of scientific publications on this topic, and he's the recipient of numerous academic awards, including the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame and the Order of Canada, which means you can call him sir. He's also the author of two really great books on the human microbiome and health. Number one, Let Them Eat Dirt, and number two, The Whole Body Microbiome. I highly recommend checking them out. Without further ado, let's dig in. Dr. Finley, Brett, thank you very much for being here on Get Real Health. What I'm wanting to do with this show is to give people access to real experts to answer real life questions using real science. So you are the perfect person to do this and the microbiome is a perfect topic to get started. So thank you for being here. Great, really excited. Okay, I'd love to get started by hearing a little bit of your personal story. So how you came to be a scientist and how you landed in the field of microbiome, which probably didn't exist when you started. Yeah, well, I was blessed with having two science parents as well as just a botanist. So I was always science geek and then took biochemistry and I really love microbes. So, um, and I actually did my PhD in biochemistry. I worked in a lab that worked on microbes that cause disease, infectious agents. And I just love that. And so um, I, I basically did my PhD in that general area and then a postdoc at Stanford, also looking at how microbes cause disease. And then we started to deal with microbes, how they actually go into mammalian cells and adhere to mammalian cells, and we call this cellular microbiology. And I spent much of my career doing that. And then probably in the mid-2000s, we had a lab retreat. We go to a nice place and we sit around and brainstorm and I pour some whiskey and we generally try to figure out, well, where should we go from here? And so we worked on diarrhea all our lives. And then we started asking this question, what about all those other microbes? We know they're in the gut, we know nothing about them. We'd always ignored them. We just focused on E. coli and salmonella. And then so we sort of sobered up, came home, and then we started looking at the literature and there really wasn't anything known what happens to, you know, what these things do during diarrhea. And so that basically unleashed me into the microbiome world. I started with that dealing with diarrhea. We did these first fecal transfers between resistant septal mice, changing phenotypes that way. And then um, and then my wife, who's a pediatrician, I was talking to her about the role of antibiotics and diarrhea and gut microbes. She said, you know, Brett, kids get asthma first year of life. Uh, kids take antibiotics first year of life. They have higher rates of asthma. I thought, hmm, let's see. We've got antibiotics that kill microbes in the gut. We talk lung disease. So I put a grad student on this, just a crazy idea, and boom, away she went. And now we're working on Parkinson's and malnutrition, all sorts of crazy gut-brain accesses. 
All because I worked on diarrhea, which was my life up until about 10 years ago. That's how I got here. That's great cocktail conversation topic, isn't it? Good pickup line. Ah, diarrhea is a bread and butter. <laughs> so um, you do have children. I know you have at least one because of you were co-authors on one of your books. Do you have one child or do you have several? I have two. Uh, yeah. Daughters. One. Yeah. So my daughter, she's a PhD in gerontology and they co-wrote that book together. And my son, he's actually a... A medical doctor so okay and so he's a scientist my son's a doctor so my wife and i have just replaced ourselves so one for one <laughs> right so i'm curious actually because as you know i did some of my graduate work um involving brown matter as well and uh and I, so you must have been very comfortable with the diapers when your kids arrived did you do anything in terms of self-experiments on your kids and their microbiome development well, that was way before the microbiome, because my kids are um, just 30s. And so microbiome's really only been with us for about a decade or so. Back then, it was called normal flora. So, yeah, I changed diapers and things, um, couples and feces and diarrhea. But, you know, it's really weird that how the microbiome just literally exploded onto the scientific yeah. scene yeah. in the last decade. And it just wasn't... Yeah. We knew, we knew since Andy Van Leeuwenhoek in the late 1600s said there's microbes in us, but we, didn't, we never paid any attention to them whatsoever. Okay, well, thank you for that that personal story. It's always fun to hear how you got to where you are, and um, you know, and what keeps you going. I mean, you've been in this field for over three decades, right? I mean, what right. what what keeps you here? I mean, I guess it's just the tools are exploding, and and the knowledge is exploding, and yeah, I, I mean, what else in life do you get to go explore? You never know what each day is going to find, and you get to see things that no one's ever seen before. And then the good part is that it's useful. You know, yeah. you can actually change the world knowing all this. Um, why wouldn't I want to do this? Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of feel the same way about science. It's the most obvious career path in the world because it helps answer fundamental questions that are actually useful. It's like that well, inner yeah. toddler who, who wants to know why, why, why. Why? <laughs> yeah. So we just didn't grow up. That's okay. So let's start diving into the topic of microbiome and health. And I think a lot of people don't even really have the vocabulary to have the discussion. So I wanted you to help lay some of that down with, you know, the definition of the microbiome and familiarize people with some of the tools that we use to study it. Yeah, sure. So um, we, we use lots of these terms. But basically, most people have heard of microbes. So that's bacteria, fungi, single-celled and higher-up organisms. And most people know microbes from those that cause disease. So salmonella or you know, Campylobacter, Staphylococcus, all these nasty microbes. People have generally heard of these things. Um, but what people haven't heard so much about is that all these microbes living in and on us. So when we say the term microbiota, that's really the collection of all the living microbes, which are just basically invisible living organisms in and on us. And there's phenomenal numbers there. It's, you know, as you know, there's at least as many microbes in and on us as there are on human cells. And so at least 10 to 100 times more genes than we encode. You just can't see them, so we don't think about it. And the numbers are astounding. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's up to 100 trillion microbes in and on us. Well, what does that mean? Well, you take a gram of feces, which is about the size of your little finger, a little tiny piece of poo, um, there's more microbes in, in that little piece of food than there are humans in the entire world. So we're just completely coated in these microbes in and on us. So they're on the outsides of us, skin, armpits, um, upper nasal tract, all the way through the GI tract, which is really just a tube through us. Um, but they're not really, you don't see them much in the blood and circulating in tissue and things. And this is normal. This is how we've evolved. These are part of us. 
Um, we've known they've been there for a long time, but we've realized in the last 10 years that they're actually doing something. I think that's been the big turning point. Now, as for tools, the reason we really didn't know much about these things is they're really hard to grow. You know, inside your gut, there's no air. So um, if you then take a microbe and put it on a plate, it won't grow. That's what we call anaerobic. So we had real trouble growing them. And then when the sequencing revolution came on, we sort of realized that, well, hey, we don't have to grow them. We can just sequence them. We know who they are without even growing them. And then there was an explosion of, of looking at microbes all over our bodies. And that's when we really start to realize there's a whole collection. Now, we're starting to know quite a bit about bacteria, which is a very common um, microbe. We know less about things called viruses and protozoa and fungi. Well, that's starting to come along. So ironically, usually when we say the microbiome, we actually mean almost always the bacterium, if you want to call it that. But these others, we just haven't explored them yet because we haven't had the tools quite so much. The bacteria have been pretty easy to look at. Um, what fraction of your microbiome are bacteria versus some of those other um, creatures? I guess, it, 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 yeah, what's, I suppose it depends on how you're measuring. Hmm? Exactly. Yeah, we just don't know um, because we really don't know how to go catalog all the viruses, yeah. in this, for example. We can yeah. do sequencing and find viral sequences, but we really don't know. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, You've got to keep memory. This is a new frontier, and we really don't have many of the answers and many of the questions. Mm-hmm. But I guess you're going to. Ask. I'm going to say, well, we just have to understand this yet. That's mm-hmm. exciting, but frustrating because we can't explain everything yet. We're just so exploring. Um, yeah, one of the terms that I like is the. Do they say that the the newest organ or something or the undiscovered organ is one way to think about the microbiome, right? Yeah, um, people can call it an organ because it's it's this collection it has about the same mass as your brain in terms of body weight, all these microbes put together. And what we're starting to realize is they do a lot of things for our body. So they have organ functions, you know, they help our yeah. gut develop, the brain develop, our immune system develop, all of these things. And they impact our physiology. And we know this because we can actually grow mice. And we did one human where they don't have any microbes in them. We call it germ-free. We should really call it microbe-free. And these things just do not felt normally at all. I mean, we need these microbes not only make essential vitamins, but they do all these other physiological effects that we just have no clue about several years ago. So did you say there was a human? Or you, I know I'm familiar with the mice. Yeah. Is there some- well, well but yeah, the guy named David Vedder became known as the bubble boy. So before he was born, he had no immune system. So they birthed him by a cesarean section, take them sterile, put them in a sterile environment, mm-hmm. and they kept them sterile for 12 years. They knew they had to feed them two vitamins in microscope. And the only time he got out of the sterile bubble, he's been on a NASA spacesuit a few times because um, he had to live in a sterile environment and he died. Unfortunately, he died when they tried to do a transplant from his sister and she had a virus in her, in, in her genetic makeup that then wow. um, killed him at age 12. But we know from animal studies that these are not normal organisms. They, they, many brains are screwed, guts screwed, immune systems screwed. They just don't develop normally. We need these microbes for part of it. Yeah. And humans are not unique in that, right? As you say, it's it's, it's animals. It's all throughout the the, the universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we live. You know, I don't can say we live. This world is coated in a veneer of species full of microbes, and we're all every animal is exposed to these things all the time. And um, this is just normal. I mean, microbes made us, but they they also realize, hey, here's a nice 37 degree moist place to live yeah. that gets watered three times a day. Why wouldn't they want to live? Yeah, it's a lovely place to live. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. So historically, we've had quite an appreciation for fear of pathogens, but sort of what's the story of appreciating the other side, the benefits of microbes? 
yeah, this is a really interesting concept that, um, so, you know, 300 plus years ago, Van Leeuwenhoek discovered microbes. Then in the late 1800s, two very famous microbiologists, Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur, basically showed that microbes cause disease. That was a huge step forward because nobody knew what cholera was. They thought it was swamp gas and bad air. We just didn't know what caused disease. Then Pasteur took it a step further. He said, well, if you kill these microbes, you don't get disease. That's pasteurization, right? So, okay, if microbes cause disease and killing gets rid of disease, what do we do? We'll kill microbes. The last 125 years, we've been on a bent to slaughter microbes. We have antibiotics and vaccines and sanitation. And when you look at most infectious diseases in our society, they have gone down nicely. Yay, it works. But there's another half of the curve that this is where it gets the microbes come in the microbiome, is that when you look at other diseases in our society, non-infectious diseases, so I'm talking obesity, diabetes, autism, inflammatory bowel disease, cardiovascular disease, all these developed country diseases, asthma, they've gone in exactly the opposite direction. And so the question is, well, why? What's happened to our world? And it's not genetic changes in people because it's only you know, two generations kind of thing. And so we call this the hygiene hypothesis that we are just trying to keep this world so clean that we avoid any kind of microbe to give us a disease, but we miss out on the normal microbes. And it's missing out on these normal microbes is really screwing us up on all these other diseases that I just mentioned. And so you kind of got to balance the hygiene. Am I going to die of an infection yeah. versus my kid's not going to get the normal microbes if they're born by C-section, so they might be obese and asthmatic and all these other problems. So this is a dilemma we're at now when we realize that, hey, there's, there's collateral damage to all this slaughter of microbes that we need these things. So that's a great segue to launch into, like, again, what have we learned about the connections between microbe and health? So I think a great place to start is, um, let's just limit it to gut for now, because just there's just too much to talk about if we, if we keep the whole body in mind. Um, but on the gut side, what does a healthy gut microbiome look like? And how do we measure that? If, if, you, if I gave you a sample of my gut microbiome, and how would you measure it? And how would you score it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a contentious area. Um, we're not very good at saying what a healthy is, but we're pretty good at saying what a bad microbe is. We call this dysbiotic. It's kind of unbalanced. And so the thing you have to realize that um, every person's microbe is unique. Your microbiome is very different than mine. Um, it, your microbiome is probably closest to your husband, let's say, um, people you live with rather than your identical twin living on the other side of the world. So close contact really can shape the microbes. Um, but what is a healthy microbe? I mean, when you look at people, say, from China, for example, versus America, they have very, very different microbial compositions, yet they're both healthy. How come? And so I think part of the problem is because each of us has a unique set of microbes, we tend to forget that what these microbes are doing. And if we could say, okay, you need these 10,000 genes, microbial genes expressed in your gut, I don't care who makes them, as long as they're there, digest your food, then you're fine and I'm fine, yet we have different microbes. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually really hard to say what is a normal in my health here. But we are very, very good at, at looking at, well, that's just not normal. And so right. people with inflammatory bowel disease or obesity or cardiovascular disease, they have dysbiotic microbes. And so you, you can actually measure, even like in Parkinson's and things, we can predict with 85% accuracy the fecal sample whether you have Parkinson's or not based on your gut microbes. Um, so we, we can detect these things, um, but um, what is a healthy microbe? That's still a challenging question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the term ecosystem is really helpful lens sort of yeah. to, to, for, for viewing it. Is there are certain niches, certain functions to be played, and there are various people who can play those roles, various 
Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, healthy ecosystem is great. And the other thing that we do know is that you want lots of different microbes. We call this diversity. And this is just a standard ecological rule that, you know, in the Amazon rainforest, you have a bunch of species. That's called diversity. And when you get rid of diversity, it's not good. And mm -hmm. the problem is that we are getting rid of our diversity. We all live in the same place. We eat the same food. And our microbes are getting less and less diverse. And this is actually unhealthy from an ecological point. We're seeing it being affected in people. So that is another characteristic of these people that very often have um, not as diverse microbes as mm -hmm. more healthy. Mm -hmm. So to summarize, I guess the two features of a healthy gut microbiome would be they are it's diverse and it's well balanced. Which so there's not one player that's just overshadowing every all the rest. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, it's exactly right. It's been a hard concept for microbiologists to use because we've always thought about one pathogen, you know, mm -hmm. salmonella, staph aureus, or maybe cholera, causes cholera, TB kind of thing. And so ironically, this field is everyone's trying to um, try and say there's one microbe that causes obesity. That's not true. It's mm -hmm. collection, it's whole collective ecosystem of microbes. Yeah. You think of it like a city, you know, everyone's got particular duties to do in the city and there's no one person that's, that's central to the city, um, but they're all contributing to it. Kind of yeah. Do you have just thinking just thinking about this for the first time in terms of in the ecosystem? My 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 one ecology course I ever took, they have this concept of like a is it called a king species or what's that term? Keystone keystone species. I mean, does that exist in the gut microbiome as well? Like there could be some that have more important roles than others. Right, and that's where a lot of the research is right now, because the idea is if we can identify these keystone species that have particular functions, we can then build the rest of the community around them, and then we can you know, key, key in on these species and actually make it a better microbiome. Mm -hmm. So um, there's some that have more effects than others. There's definitely some that are more prevalent than others. Um, but again, I hate to say it, but we need more research. We really don't know. There are some minor species that do seem to play a big role, and a lot of Right. Some of the species that just happen to be there and they don't do anything and they can be substituted. Right. So we just don't understand it yet. Right, yeah. right. So you've mentioned a lot of different diseases where the gut microbiome appears to be perturbed. And how do you disentangle correlation and causation in that whole chicken and egg? What came first, the microbiome yeah. or the disease? Right. Well, let's take an example I've been involved in because I think it's a nice, easy way to explain it. Let's take asthma. So... If you're born by a cesarean section for your family, you've got about a 25 to 30% higher rate of, of becoming asthmatic. You also have a higher rate of obesity. If you live in a farm, you have a similar decreased rate of asthma. If you're breastfed versus bottle fed, you have decreased asthma. If you have a dog in the house, you have decreased asthma. And so the question is, well, what do all things have in common? And what we've now shown is that basically it's your early life microbes. They're really important for how you shape the immune system do you go asthmatic, allergic, or do you go normal type thing? And then when you hit age five, when you hit these allergens, you then trigger asthma or not, depending which way your immune system. So these early life microbes are really important for immune system health. So you can show that asthmatic kids have different microbes. We can actually take the feces of a three-month-old kid, and if we look for these four microbes, we can predict if they have those microbes, they're basically not going to get asthma. If they don't have them, they're at the very highest risk of getting asthma. And so, well, how do we prove it? The chicken and egg concept. So the way we did this is we actually took feces from a kid that was missing these things. We knew that kid had actually gone on to get asthma. And then we put in these four microbes and then we put into a 
uh, germ-free mouse, no microbes, and put this human feces plus or minus those four into a mouse, and then a mouse model asthma, and say, did they block asthma? And they blocked. That's as close as we've been able to get so right. far. The experiment we now have to do is take a you know a bunch of three month old kids that are lacking these microbes, put them in, and show them five years later and get asthma. That's, yeah. that's an insane experiment yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a lot of correlation. There's not a lot of causation yet. I mean, this field got started when they were doing fecal transfers from obese mice into thin mice, and these mm-hmm. thin mice being and if mm-hmm. you put thin mouth species near a fat mouse, lost weight kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a long time ago, you think, well, we should have obesity solved by now. You know, how simple is that? It's just the gut microbes, right? And ironically, it's way more complex than that. So I'll give you another example where I think we molecularly started to really figure it out the best, and that's cardiovascular disease. So that's heart attacks and strokes. That's atherosclerosis, and everyone says that's high cholesterol. Arteries harden if you get a Spot in the brain, you get a stroke anywhere else in the body, there's a heart attack. Um, okay, well, what do microbes have to do with that? <laughs> First answer, well, nothing, right? This is high cholesterol and lack of exercise, right? Well, it turns out that when you eat red meat, um, there's molecules in red meat called phosphocholine and carnitine, and these microbes actually chew on these molecules and they convert them into a certain molecule, and your body then modifies that molecule further. And that molecule called TMA, TMAO, that molecule actually causes atherosclerosis. So if you take germ-free mice that don't have any microbes in them, you can feed them all the red meat you want. They don't get atherosclerosis. Vegans and vegetarians have very low levels of heart attacks and stroke. And the most exciting thing is that if you take, um, if you take the mice, if you drug the microbial pathway, that very first step that breaks it down the microbes do, you can actually block that breakdown and you can feed them all the red meat you want. They don't get because you block the first microbe step, right? And so ironically, now we look for the enzymes that these microbes include in people, and that's a better predictor of cardiovascular disease than cholesterol levels are, for example. Hmm. Because if you know if these microbes are doing it, you're, you're in trouble, you're headed this way. So that's another example, I think, of, of some of the best ways um, that we're right. really getting actually showing the mechanism. Right, right, where you sort of perturb the system and you can break the connection. Right. I mean, it, it's really hard about coupling the diet from microbes. Like, if you change your diet, you change your microbes. Well, is it the fact you change your diet to improve your health or the fact that you change your microbes to improve your health? And they kind of go hand in hand. And you pretty much can't uncouple that very well. Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, I think in terms of health and everything, I mean, diet and exercise are the big two factors. We know both of those have profound effects on your microbes in yeah. terms of um, yeah. how they affect you. Well, that was exactly what I was going to lead into is how do we, how do we get a better microbiome? Because everyone wants the good microbiome these days, right? Yeah. So when I wrote that, the whole body microbiome with my daughter, Jessica, who's a gerontologist, um, I really started. Oh, well, there you go. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Very accessible. Yeah. Yeah, That was a cool idea that, you know, so when I was thinking about this, I mean, they say that Genetics are about 25% of your chances of living longer, and environment's about 75%. That's exciting. That means you control about 75% of, of healthy living, right? And healthy aging. And then I read this book, it's called The Blue Zones, and there's just five yeah. areas in the world where people live forever. It's Costa Rica and um, Mediterranean and um, Okinawa, Japan, and Loma Linda, California. And so when you read this, they basically say, well, there's four reasons why 
people live a long time. The first is diet. So they generally don't eat a lot of red meat. They have a pig roast in, in New Year's, but they're, they're mainly beans, nuts, fruits, legumes, or, you know, Mediterranean, Mediterranean diet type thing. So diet plays a big role. Um, the second one is exercise. You don't have to be a marathon runner, but you got to be active. You got to toddle down to town to play cards with your buddy or go sheep herd or whatever you do. You stay active. You play tennis and you'll move into California. So that's diet and exercise. And then third one is community. And, you know, you've got the 80 year old boggle looking after the 100 year old dad. You've got the grandkids roaring through the house and the dog and, you know, the whole family's in contact with each other. And the idea of locking up elders in, in an old folks' home and keeping sterile, that's just the worst thing that we can do from our microbes because we need all these communal microbes. I think we should be bringing toddlers into old folks' home and let them rip, you know. Let's, 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 let's give them nice young microbes because they're great microbes. So that's the third reason, the community. And the fourth reason is stress. You know, Costa Rica, food, you know, chill kind of thing, you know, Mediterranean. And then we all know our lives, these things. And stress is horrible things to your microbes too. So that's kind of generally how we see aging going, that I think you, know, you can probably add about a decade to your life if you kind of think about these things. Yeah, yeah. I guess I sort of look at um, a plant-based diet or a plant-predominant diet through that that lens. It's like it's not one benefit. It's, you know, the plants are feeding your microbiome, but they're also, you know, providing the antioxidants and the vitamins and minerals, the nutrient dense, and there's whatever. There's multiple reasons pointing all in the same direction. So it's just one more reason to do the same thing you're already being told to do. Yeah. And if that's not convincing enough, there's this thing called the MIND diet, which is basically um, a Mediterranean diet combined with something called the DASH diet, which is kind of DASH diet. It's fruits, nuts, legumes, and things. Stay away from red meat. Stay away from white sugar, white flour, because these are already broken down, and so they're absorbed before they ever get to the microbes down in the gut. You follow this, that basically you drop your dementia rates by over 50% just by following this diet. And yeah. um, you don't follow it perfectly. It's like 38% or something. And um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, healthy eating, because... When you eat white sugar, white flour, it's already digested. It's sucked into the body very high in the intestine and never makes microbes. The reason you want to eat plants is not because they're good for you. They're good for the microbes that are good for you. Yeah. And so I, you put all fiber getting down deep down in your gut and let them break it down and select them for good microbes. I was going to say, coming, bringing up your other book, Let Them Eat Dirt, my, one of my favorite parts so far was when uh, Mary Claire talked about um, the way she explained the microbiome to her daughter and said, you know, you have this community, you know, her young daughter, that you have this community inside you. They're colorful, they're playful, they're doing great things for you and you need to feed them. They don't like hot dogs and pizza and chicken nuggets. They like veggies and and you're going to starve them if you don't give them your veggies. And then she ate her veggies. I haven't tried that with my kids, but I'm definitely planning on it. Yeah, you got to tell them they got this microbe zoo and the, the animals need feeding and they don't eat meat. They eat plants kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Can you quickly say maybe a thing or two about probiotics and the sort of the limitations? Um, you know, I, you spoke in, in your some of your both of your books, I believe, about, um, you know, again, the there's sort of two sides to it or multiple sides to, you know. When they are, when they're useful, when they might not be useful or, or all the, you know, regulatory issues and so on relating to. Yeah. About an hour. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I know. um, I guess, how do you break down probiotics? Like mentally, how do you sort of bucket them and, and their applications? Well, I mean, I'd love probiotics to work. 
bottom line is some work for some things. And the analogy I give is you need a new pair of runners. You go in a sporting goods store. There's this wall full of runners. There's sneakers and joggers and court shoes and bike shoes and walkers and everything. You don't just grab the cheapest pair and walk out and say, great, I've got my runner. You know, um, probiotics are the same way. Now, many of the probiotics, if all the probiotics, well, a lot of them are lactobacillus and bifidobacter. These are actually regular components of the woman's vagina. The gut is a completely different world. There's no air in there. It's not acidic. It, it, it's, it's alkaline pH. And it's kind of like taking a penguin down to the desert and say, okay, survive now. So bottom line is that if your listeners want to, there's a just Google probiotic chart. It's probioticchart.ca in Canada and there's also an American one. This is a list of all the probiotics and what they are and how many microbes in there. But what they do is they list what's the clinical evidence they actually work in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, which is a medical standard. And there are some that work for xena, some for antibody-patient diarrhea, a yeast that works for C. diff clinically, but most don't work for a lot of people. And proving a probiotic is, improves your health, that's a tough clinical thing. Are you better two weeks from now if you take this? Well, I might have slept better, but you know, I got a kink in my neck. You know, how, how do you do this? <laughs> all that being said, all that being said, is I'm really excited about the next generation probiotics. We call it probiotic 2.0 there. Because we are going to take um, a defined community, like 10, 12 microbes from the gut for the gut. They're going to work together to have a defined biochemical outcome. They're going to make something that say drops inflammation, for example. And this is actually going through the FDA as we call them live biotherapeutic trials, LBPs, this mixture of microbes. They'll be drugs. They're going to have to meet the standards of a drug that works in clinical mm-hmm. trials. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, they're already underway in this, but there's several things now. So there's a really bright future once we free these microbes out. But the current version of probiotics, you're just not very good. And, um, the good thing is they're not going to hurt you. Take them if you like them. One way I described it to a friend once is that you you imagine you're going into a lunchroom and all the tables are full and then the new kid comes in and they're trying to sit down and no one's making room for them. They're, they just come in and yeah, then they leave. Like, yeah, I would say like university classes, classrooms full, so they leave, yeah. Um, and, and there's some studies showing that, you know, if you take antibiotics and then probiotics, they can actually right. influence how well you repair your, repair right. your microbes too. You might impact on that in some people anyway. Yeah. So yeah. it's an exciting area of the future, but yeah. not there yet. Yeah. Personally, um, I tend to be sort of probiotic skeptic because of the lack of evidence I've seen of them taking hold. But if my kid has a course of antibiotics, I'm more inclined to feel like, well, maybe now that the tables are cleared, they might have a chance of sticking around. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a good data for some probiotic for, called antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So you take antibiotics with diarrhea, they've actually been clinically shown to improve mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I would argue instead of probiotics, you know, just start making sure you're a real diverse diet. Give your microbes yeah. a big chance to come back and take your kids outside and let them roll in the dirt and let the dogs yeah. slobber all over them and yeah. hang out with a bunch of other kids in different neighborhoods. Like you yeah. want to kind of reestablish these microbes. Because antibiotics, they're horrible. They basically nuke the entire microbiome. Yes, they wipe out a pathogen, but it, it's like carpet bombing. It's, you know, yeah. nuclear bombing. Yeah. Got yeah. And I think not just resistance, I think, you know, the fact that I don't think antibiotics are harmless anymore. We now know that they yeah. lead to increased anxiety, stress, depression, obesity, you name yeah. it. Because yeah. you're hurting these kids that live in this. And so if yeah. you're dying of a life infection, of course take antibiotics, you know. Yeah. But we'll take it for a viral ear infection, which they don't work for anyway because they can't hurt. They can't yeah. hurt. Yeah. No, I, 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 
I know of um, several people from a different generation than me who are um, maybe less of this global awareness of antibiotics and get frustrated when their doctor won't give them antibiotics for their cold, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, well, yay, doctor. Yeah, but on the other hand, they were the best medical intervention the last century. They yeah. saved so many more lives than pretty much anything. If you yeah. died of infection versus this, this new magic drug could save you. But this gets back to the whole hygiene balance, like, you know, yeah. fighting infections yeah. versus our normal yeah. microbes that we have to nurture. Yeah. So yeah. I wanted to wrap up with some rapid fire questions, um, just kind of for fun. I'm going to give you a couple of fill in the blanks or multiple choice questions and okay. just to see what comes out of your mouth. Um, okay. If there's one thing you could do today to make your microbiome better, it would be this. Eat healthier. Healthy but diet. healthier. Well, anymore. Less, less white sugars, less white, white flour more plant-based, um, you know, glass of red wine a day, Mediterranean diet. Style. Okay. Um, Number two, um, what is an anti, what is a product that claims to be pro microbiome that you just, you know, an example or two of a product that you would sort of save your money. Don't, don't spend on this, you know, pro microbiome friendly yeah, product. The majority of probiotics, prebiotics for sure. There's no proven there um, in, in those senses. So I would say those things. And also stay away from things like have anti antibacterial, like um, count, counter cleaners, um, household cleansers that have antibacterial activities in them. They just don't do a bit of good. Um, same with um, hand sanitizers and hand wipes. Only if you're going to an old folks home or a cancer ward, your kids don't need hand wipes. Um, soap and water is equally efficient. So there's four answers in one. Yeah. Okay, no, that, that that's good. Um, I guess maybe last question. I think I know the answer with, but so your kid drops food on the floor. Is it a three second rule? Is it a ten second rule? Do you throw the food away, or do you just brush it off and put it in their mouth? And and maybe maybe how does context affect the answer? Well, I guess it depends where that floor is. You know, New York subway station, or is it your kitchen floor kind of thing? But generally speaking. There's actually a study looking at the 10 second rule and it has nothing to do with time, with how moist the surface is and things like this. Um, I think, again, this hygiene balance, you know, you watch a kid put a stone in their mouth in the playground and some mums will freak out and others will just make sure he doesn't choke on it kind of thing. I think we have to rethink how we live in this world. There's too much uptightness in this. Just to give an example, mm -hmm. similar to this is a soothing study. We, I found that if you put a soothe in a kid's mouth, he spits it out and goes on the floor. Your options are put in your own mouth and back of the kid's mouth, or you run off to the washer and wash it off and then put it in the kid's mouth. If you wash it off and, go, and then get your micro, get the kid's microbes and clean it, and then don't put it in your mouth, those kids have much higher rates of asthma, obesity, and various other complications down the line, as opposed to if you stick it in your own mouth and jam it in the kid's mouth, because that's your microbes going to the kid. So, yeah, I, I would say I don't care if it's on the floor unless it's moldy or some other hazardous thing. Awesome. So I think to sum it up, we can say embrace your microbiomes and uh, like you say, let them eat dirt. I'm, that sounds like a great, I'm all about any strategy that reduces stress. Yeah, uh, stress great. in parenting, stress in just your daily decisions. Well, you live so, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Dr. Finley, for being here. It's been a pleasure and I've learned a lot. No, it's been really fun. Thanks a lot.